Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this show, we examine the big money business of gaming when we speak with Jeff Freeman, president and CEO of the American Gaming Association. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams. And Eben, this is your story. This is your headline. Your college football team is very worried about GOP tax reform. Explain. You guys know I don't exaggerate. Every college team in the country right now is concerned about this GOP tax plan. Winthrop? Yes, okay. absolutely. Now I believe it's every team. <laughs> for, the, for the past 30 years, colleges have exploded their spending on the backs of a huge growth in donations. Media rights, yes, but also donations. And the way they function those donations is that they're set up so that they're tax deductible. There's a way written into the tax code that lets you deduct 80% of your donation if it's tied to a seat priority. So the way they do it, Michael, is they just say, hey, you want football tickets? Give us $10,000 as a donation. Then you can buy your $400 seats. You get the right tax deduction on that donation. You win, obviously. They win because you're willing to spend more. Uh, And this is kind of one of the major pillars that's funded college athletics in the past 30 years. And Republicans right now are threatening to take it away. I'm guessing these are probably then some of the most influential people on campus. They're not just buying tickets. When you know as well as I do, when you make this kind of donation, maybe your name goes in a locker room. Maybe you get to talk to the head coach or the athletic director. You know what I've been thinking about our offense. This isn't just about money. It's about power and influence. Exactly. And that's kind of one of the things that colleges are banking on right now. They're hoping that the fact that a lot of these boosters are pretty influential, maybe they have contacts in Washington, maybe they have contacts elsewhere in the business world, that they can kind of get the word out there. You know, one of the big things they're afraid of is this narrative that, oh, that's just a tax that benefits the rich. You know, these are wealthy people giving donations. Maybe they shouldn't have a tax deduction on that. The point that colleges are making is that, no, this forms, this helps us fund all of our scholarships. It helps us fund the men's soccer team and the women's gymnastics team. All the things that they do for their student athletes is based on this income. And if that income stream starts to dry up, they are very worried about what that looks like for the future. You wrote a line here, and take Louisiana State, for example. Between the athletic department and its foundation, the perennial power receives more than $60 million per year in donations tied to seat licenses. And that now is being threatened. Exactly. That's that, that puts it into good perspective because a lot of people think that college sports and college football commercialized on the back of, of media rights. Well, the truth is that a lot of schools, and Louisiana State is one of them, get more money from donations tied to seat licenses than they get from their media rights. That's how important this pillar of funding is for college sports, and they're very worried they're going to lose it. You have a better feel for this than I do. Does the chasm between have and have-nots potentially grow larger? If it passes, the, the schools like Michigan, Alabama, Auburn, these people, I'm guessing, are going to donate anyway. All right, I lose my deduction, but I'm going to donate because, darn it, I need to be a part of this program. Then you get to sort of that second tier where maybe the deduction really influences whether or not I give the money? That's a good, great question. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the big question throughout the whole thing is, is how much does this affect my donation? And the general consensus is, sure, if you're really, really rich and you just think, oh, the price of my season tickets just went up 7%, Maybe this doesn't affect your so donation. So Phil, Phil Knight's going to still give money exactly. to Exactly, yes. But if you're a, a car dealer outside Winthrop and you donate to the Winthrop basketball team or the football team or just the athletic program and, and you get this tax deduction, suddenly that might change if the tax deduction goes away. 
Let's talk about another topic, something that you have mentioned, Eben, about the NFL extending its commitment to play in Mexico. It's a natural fit for the NFL. They're playing two games there this year. Both of them sold out in less than an hour at, at an average price of $95 a ticket. Uh, we talk a lot about London as, as a space where the NFL is obviously growing a lot. They continue to see business success. Mexico City is like that as well. Um, but there's more enticing aspects to Mexico than there are in London. Obviously, it's closer to America. The time zone isn't a big change. It's the, akin to playing a game in, in Chicago. Mexico is a growing middle class. It's very, very, uh, very familiar with American culture, and this is a natural fit for them. Was Carlos Slim an obvious potential investor in a team, but was he waiting for baseball? I don't know. But certainly the Hispanic language market in the U.S., if you look at Univision, you see Telemundo, the ratings there for some U.S. sports events are great. So there's a market there to spend money. You could advertise at that market. Seems like a likely candidate for expansion. Yeah, yes. and the NFL is not alone here. The NBA is playing games there. Major League Baseball has three games there, and F1 has a race there. There's a there's a rush right now for professional sports to get into Mexico. And another topic: the Players Tribune has launched the live athlete Q and A show on Twitter. Uh, let's talk about that. What's the big thing about this, and how will this expand over to us? I always wondered what Players Tribune is going to do next. That was always my thing. Well, what's next? The part that I'm confused about with this, Evan, is that athletes can do this themselves anyway. They can do it via FaceTime. They can do it on Twitter. They don't need a middleman. Is the platform strong enough now? Is it a strong enough brand that players wish to be associated with Players' Tribune and share their stories there? I mean, for some of these athletes, clearly the answer is yes. On a widespread, I, I don't know. Sure, I think that's a great question. I mean, they, obviously, there are other places you can do this. Reddit, Ask Me Anything, is probably the most famous, and we've seen athletes on that pretty consistently. I don't know if you watched the first one with AJ Green earlier this week. Uh, it was a lot of kind of the questions that you would expect fans to ask. What's your pregame ritual? Who's the hardest cornerback you ever went up to, uh, went up against? Things like that. And and I think Players Tribune is going to struggle to keep this fresh. You know, you need a the questions have to be good, right? The the athlete has to be willing to answer some of the tougher ones. And if you keep getting the same basic questions week in and week out, I don't see this thing succeeding. Well, that's what I'm worried about because if a player asks another player, it's like, well, what are you, what are your hobbies? Well, I like to hunt and fish. Well, I mean, that's what happens all the time. And like you said, you want to hear a little more expansion of of the topics. Two words, compelling content. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams. Now let's get to this week's interview with American Gaming Association CEO Jeff Freeman. The American Gaming Association is a national trade group representing the $240 billion U.S. casino industry. Jeff, thanks for taking a few minutes. It's great to be with you. What has happened since Adam Silver told us that he was changing his stance on sports betting and wrote that op-ed in the New York Times. What has changed in that time period? I think everything has changed, and unfortunately for most, it's been behind the scenes, so they haven't been able to necessarily see it and appreciate it. But where we are today, three years uh, out from when Adam Silver wrote that op-ed, is exponentially further down this path than we were at the time. 
we know that uh, uh, the courts are moving forward, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, the Supreme Court uh, moving forward with the case in New Jersey. Uh, on Capitol Hill, there is much greater buzz about this issue uh, than we've seen at any point in the past 25 years of this failed federal ban. Uh, we've got 15 states just in the past year alone have either passed or introduced legislation to regulate sports betting. This issue has moved much further down the tracks, and I've never been more confident that a regulated sports betting market is right around the corner. When you say right around the corner, one year, three years, five years, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but we people like to give yeah. the time frames. A couple of years ago, uh, we were saying three to five years. Uh, now the court has thrown a new wrinkle in this. You know, We have the great potential here of the U.S. Supreme Court declaring this failed federal ban unconstitutional, and you could see states offering regulated sports betting as soon as 2018. In the event that the court takes a more nuanced position, I think we're probably two years out. I think we're looking at 2019 to probably get something done in Congress. It's ambitious uh, from a timeline perspective. But depending upon what the court does, you're going to see the leagues, the gaming industry, the broadcasters, all working together with a shared goal of a regulated sports betting market. Some critics would say, Jeff, why is this unconstitutional? Why do you want gambling across the entire United States? Well, I think whether it's constitutional or not is a different issue from whether or not you want an expansion of gambling. Uh, and when I say expansion, I mean legal, because as you know and I know and everybody else knows, sports betting is taking place in every corner of this country right now. Uh, more than $150 billion spent each year on sports, all of it being done in an unregulated fashion, in an illegal fashion, with no consumer protections, with no benefits back to local communities. The ship has sailed on sports betting. It's happening. So critics need to choose one of two paths, unregulated, illegal, dark of night, or bring this out into the regulated market where there are benefits for consumers and communities. I think there's only one choice there, uh, and those that would like to suggest that there's an alternative, uh, I think, are living in a fantasy land. Now, it's one thing if sports betting takes place across the nation in a casino. What happens when it's approved online? Well, what you have in the state of Nevada right now is the ability to provide sports betting through the casinos at their brick-and-mortar sports books inside the casinos or through a mobile channel where you use your loyalty program with the casinos. We know that more than 60% of the bets that are placed in Nevada right now are placed in a mobile fashion. So I'm using my Caesars account or my MGM account or my William Hill account. I'm using one of them, and most consumers are placing that bet in a mobile fashion in Nevada. Uh, I would uh, expect that to be the case when this issue expands, when this issue moves to other markets. I would expect many markets to choose to offer a plan similar to Nevada's. Some will choose a different approach. Some will choose to just give it to the brick-and-mortar casinos. Some will choose to just give it to the lotteries. We're going to see a different approach state by state, uh, but I would expect in time the ability to to do this in a mobile fashion as is done in Nevada and is done in the UK and Australia and other regulated markets around the world to be the path that is supported uh, by, by the leagues, by broadcasters, uh, and by other stakeholders. Supported by the league, and we're talking with Jeff Freeman, president and CEO of the American Gaming Association. That's the key here, yes? Jeff, supported by the leagues, and the NBA and Adam Silver have been out front, 
But right underneath the surface there, you have the NFL, MLB. You get a sense they are all in on board, even though they haven't quite come out and said it? Well, again, going back to Adam Silver's op-ed, what's changed since then? Well, we've had the Vegas Golden Knights launch. We've had the Oakland Raiders now in the midst of relocating to Las Vegas. Uh, We've had a presidential debate take place in Las Vegas. We've had a former casino owner become president of the United States. You look at what has happened in just those three years with attitudes around gaming, with the mainstream nature of the industry, I think there is much greater comfort today than there uh, ever was in the past. And I know that the leagues are doing their due diligence to prepare for a regulated market. Uh, It goes back, and it predates Adam Silver, obviously, but if you look at when this law was originally passed, that banned sports betting outside Nevada. It was banned in the pre-internet days. 1992, we we were in the very earliest stages of figuring out what that sound was for dial-up modems. Uh, this was a time where people could not imagine what the gaming industry would become, the connection with sports, the ability to uh, engage customers with sports, something that daily fantasy sports proves so effectively, and also the ability to use big data to protect the integrity of sports. Everything has changed, and I think that's why everyone uh, who is a stakeholder here is getting more and more comfortable with the relationship between regulated sports betting and the sports that we so love. We had Joe Lacob on the show a long time ago, and we made him do his old peanut vendor call. Remember, Michael? Because he was a peanut vendor. <laughs> oh, yeah. You just referenced the dial-up modem sound. Come on, Jeff. Let me give me your best sound. What yeah, was that I'm again? How did that go? That, that sound. My my, uh, my my wife makes fun of me when I try to make these. <laughs> well, here's a very simple question: What took so long? Why has it taken this long? Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, as I've gotten uh, so deep into sports betting over the past several years, I, I've run into this 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 odd sense out there that because we don't have legal sports betting in this country, therefore our sports are safe. We're not like the U.K. We're not like Australia. And it's funny how so many Americans have, and with all due respect, a head-in-the-sand approach uh, on this issue, where they, they think that it's not taking place or it's not taking place by them, when it's quite clear from March Madness to the Super Bowl to every other uh, facet of sports, billions and billions of dollars are being wagered, and we're living in darkness. Uh, we have a way in this country of, of thinking that if if we're not familiar with it, then it doesn't happen. But we know in the United Kingdom there is a way to track every single sports bet to be able to determine the integrity of what is taking place. We, uh, we're living in a darkness here, and I think some people have been comfortable with that. I think Daily Fantasy Sports was really the change agent here, along with Adam Silver. Uh, those two things really woke people up that maybe we need to take a fresh look and maybe there's a new approach here. Jeff, you touched on earlier what goes on in the U.K. I'm not sure U.S. sports fans are aware that if you're in the stadium in the U.K., you can be in the owner's suite. There's a knock at the door, and would anybody like to place a wager? Right there in the stadium, right? Well, show me the atmosphere. What are we looking at? Well, and it's gone even further than that. You know, the NFL plays several games a year uh, in, in the U.K., specifically at Wembley Stadium. And Wembley Stadium has a sports book uh, inside the stadium. And because of the NFL's concern in years past about betting, they've asked for that sports book to be closed, and indeed it has been closed. However, what hasn't been acknowledged is that every single person in that stadium with a phone has a sports book in their hand. 
And every single one of them is using the apps on those phones to make legal bets, bets that are tracked uh, through every which way in the U.K. market. And I think that tracking is what they use. I know that tracking is what they use to protect the integrity of sport. But, Jeff, let me, ask you, let me ask you this, Jeff. What can I do faster? If I whip out my phone here and I have it, what can I do quicker? Can I place a bet or get an Uber? It's funny you say that, because that's exactly the demo that we're doing for members of Congress. It's exactly the demo that we're doing for members of the media, because the truth is you can do both in the same amount of time. The ability to place a bet, the ability to order an Uber is exactly the same business. It's that business that people want to engage in, and it's one of the things that's changed about sports. I think this is critical. Our grandparents, our our parents, they used to donate three, six, nine hours of their time to kick back in a lazy boy and watch a football game or some other aspect of sports. People are no longer willing to donate that time anymore. They want to be invested. They want to be engaged. And that's what fantasy sports proved. That's what sports betting has the opportunity uh, to offer people. They want to bet is the next pitch a, a ball or a strike, and they want to do a side bet on double play. Is the next play a run or a pass? Side bet on turnover. That's a way of being engaged here, of tracking what's going on, having fun and interacting with the game that people are doing with European football, with soccer. They're doing that type of in-play betting. And I say again, it enables people to protect the integrity of the game. When you're tracking every bet that's placed, we are tracking who did it, why they did it, where they did it, and so on you're able to see when anomalies take place. You're able to see when something happened that shouldn't have happened. They've tracked it with tennis. They've tracked it with soccer. They've tracked it with other sports outside the United States. Inside the United States, we don't have that information. And truth be told, we don't know what's going on. Why would Vegas want to give up big-time sports betting? Because in the past, Vegas has been notorious for being reluctant for betting like this, or any kind of gambling for that matter, to go out of the Nevada uh, boundaries. Michael, it goes back to the question you asked earlier as to the concern that people might have with, with sports betting now happening outside, the, or outside Nevada or around the country. The truth is, it's already happening everywhere else. And the reason that Las Vegas and Nevada have come around to having a regulated market is because they realize that they don't have a monopoly. What they have is a very small portion. If you look at the $150 billion that was wagered on sports last year in the United States, only $4.5 billion, 3%, was wagered legally in Nevada. Nevada understands they don't control this market. So, frankly, there's upside. If we can take that illegal market, bring it into the legal market, then it is many companies within the gaming industry who have an opportunity in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, New Jersey, and beyond to offer this in a regulated, uh, legal fashion with the expertise that these companies bring to the table. So this really isn't about uh, uh, losing a monopoly. This is about bringing the illegal market into the regulated space and doing it the right way. I was laughing because when you guys were talking about someone coming in the booth, would you like to place a wager? Usually with some guy named Lou coming up to me talking about it. You take that element out of it, the so-called bookie element out of it. Uh, can this? How how widespread can this go? Is what I'm getting at. Well, that's so. I'm fascinated, and I, I've had the opportunity to talk to some guys and in venture capital and private equity and elsewhere, where it seems like there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines right now 
for innovation in the sports betting space. How we consume sports today is fundamentally different than how we consumed it in the past. When I sit back now and watch a Green Bay Packer game on Sunday, I'm not just watching the game on TV. I'm watching on my phone the Twitter feed of, of all of the beat writers who I follow, of others who are commenting on the game. You have this dual screen mentality going. You're consuming the game in a different way. As sports betting matures in the United States, the ways that we can engage with the game, the ways that it can be interactive, the ways that we can somehow watch a Browns-Jaguars game in the fourth quarter when nobody thought that was possible in years past, that is what's going to change. The engagement's going to change. The attention span is going to change. The interest is going to change. What that can do for ratings, what that can do for advertising, what that can do for so many who touch sports is what has everybody excited. Did you just say, and you were totally lucid for this entire conversation, but did you just say that somebody's going to be interested in the Cleveland Browns in the fourth quarter? <laughs> they have found a way to make it happen. Who knew? Who knew this could be done? That, that's saying something. And Jeff, it seems as if everybody is now starting to jockey for position. The NBA is lobbying Congress. MGM Resorts is spending money to build a sports book at the Borgata. Who is the early favorite to reap the benefits if this happens? Yeah, I think the the beauty of this issue is there's going to be uh, a lot of uh, money to go around. There's going to be a lot of opportunity to go around. Uh, Brick-and-mortar casino companies who are already active in many of these states uh, certainly have a leg up in the sense that legislators are going to want to ensure uh, that they protect and help grow those businesses that have already invested in those states. So I think they've got a good opportunity. Uh, I think lottery interests will have a good opportunity. Uh, you will see in some of these states where bars and taverns have been given the ability to offer gaming machines, that they too might have the possibility in Illinois and some other markets. The other one that's going to be very interesting, in addition to the leagues and some of the traditional stakeholders, you know, is going to be these European uh, operators and suppliers of sports betting technology. The truth is that the Europeans are further down this road uh, with a bigger market, uh, you know, in terms of a legal market, than in the U.S., and they bring great technology to bear. Uh, they're going to have uh, very intriguing assets. And I think there are going to be ways for them to work with existing operators in the United States to bring their product here. So I think they're another one that stands to benefit. At the end of the day, though, who's going to really benefit? Broadcasters. Broadcasters are going to benefit immensely from the engagement, the eyeballs, the advertising. Uh, there's tremendous opportunity on that front. One of the big topics in the news, of course, is the Republican tax bill, the overhaul, but the AGA has lobbied about some aspects against the House version of the bill. You're saying it would be bad for business. Take us through that. What would be bad for business from that bill? Yeah, I think that you know, when you look at the House bill and the Senate bill, uh, there are a lot of different features, uh, some of which are very good, such as lowering the, the corporate tax rate from 35% down to about 20%. Uh, and then what you have to figure out is these things are less good. How do you balance that with the improvement you get on the uh, the lowering of the tax rate. One of the things that's going to be very difficult to balance that we struggle with are limitations on interest deductibility. 
you know, we are a capital-intensive business when you look at casinos. Billions and billions of dollars spent to build these facilities. And then what many people don't know is tens, hundreds of millions spent to constantly refresh these facilities. You know, take a property like the Cosmopolitan, which opened not that long ago, is City Center opened in Las Vegas. In recent years, they've spent several hundred million to renovate all of the rooms the property is, what, five, six, eight years old at most, and yet they're putting hundreds of millions back into it. That's what our industry does. We have to constantly refresh, and that's where interest deductibility is important. As you, as being a capital-intensive business, uh, having that ability to deduct, to deduct those interest expenses is critical to the ability to reinvest in these properties. That's something that we're working with the broader real estate community, uh, the private equity community, and others to try to protect that interest deductibility. I think it's important uh, to, to future reinvestment in this industry. We are chatting with Jeff Freeman, the president and CEO of the American Gaming Association. And Jeff, help me out here. What does the NFL tell you? Forward-facing, they're very conservative, but they are investor in Sport Radar, which does provide betting data to the casinos all over the world. Um, it seems as if they are moving towards preparing for this. What do they say behind closed doors? Are they as conservative as we think, or are they really ready to push the envelope? I think it's, it's far less important what they say to me than, than what they say publicly and what they do publicly. And I think you can see some very interesting moves. Uh, you mentioned working with Sport Raider. Uh, we spoke earlier of the Raiders relocating to Las Vegas. We saw recently a uh, file with the U.S. Supreme Court of the opinion of the various leagues uh, as to this case. And in there, the language was much more measured than it had been in years past. Uh, I've heard Commissioner Goodell speak publicly about an evolving position on gambling. Uh, you look at all those things together, and I think the the public message is that we're open to having a new perspective here. We're open to new information. Uh, we're open to being a... Uh, a nimble organization, and I think uh, all of that is good. I think that's part of doing your due diligence, part of becoming smarter on some of these issues, and uh, I see that with all of the leagues. When you cut through all the verbiage, doesn't it just boil down to we're open to a new monster revenue stream? I think all of these leagues, and it's not just leagues. I mean, if we look at things that have been so dependent on uh, television for so many years, and that's one of the shifts. If you go back to 1992 when PASPO was put in place, there was even a greater focus at that time about getting people inside the stadiums. These TV rights deals were nothing in 1992 like they are today. There is so much that depends on television at a time when we're hearing every week of cord cutting, we're hearing of less interest in uh, consuming uh, sports and other programming that's out there. It's all about capturing eyeballs. And what works to capture the eyeballs of our parents is not going to work to capture the eyeballs of our kids. You have to evolve. And I think that's what the leagues are looking at doing. That's what our industry is looking at doing. We can't continue to provide the same product we provided 20 years ago. We have to evolve. And I think that evolution is helpful. Uh, I think the evolution is healthy. And I think too often the evolution gets criticized as being kind of crass, just in search of revenue. That's what business does. Business evolves to search for revenue. Uh, and that, that in doing that, you're adapting to your customer. And frankly, I think that's something that should be praised. Speaking of revenue, there's more to this if sports betting becomes widespread across the entire 50 states. It's not just the online sports betting sites that could pop up that could make money, 
But those ancillary sites, such as, as people with sports tips and people with the analytics sites, this could explode beyond the means that we can even imagine. I think that uh, I think what the the future of the market is uh, is something that will take many years to come to fruition. Uh, the market will take on different shapes than perhaps we imagine today. I think that's exciting. Uh, we most of us wouldn't have imagined daily fantasy sports uh, five, six, seven years ago. Um, what is it that we're not imagining right now? Five, six, seven years from now. To me, that's fun. I consume a lot of sports. I love sports. If there are suddenly new ways of interacting with it, uh, again, to me, that is exciting. If I can do that in a safe, secure, regulated fashion, all the better. Uh, you know, it's we can we can kind of have this passion for how things used to get done uh, or enjoy the ride as we do things in a much different way. Uh, I'm part of the Enjoy the Ride Brigade. Well, let's see what the ride becomes. Jeff Freeman, President and CEO of the American Gaming Association, thank you very much for your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Takeaways from speaking with Jeff Freeman. My goodness, sports betting online. The moment that happens, this is going to explode. I think that's going to be the moment when it goes into all 50 states, and that's the impression I was getting from Jeff. Yeah, the one-year, two-year was my takeaway. I was thinking three, five years down the line. But this New Jersey case that, that's coming up, he seems to think if it goes the way of New Jersey, we could be looking at legalized sports betting, federally regulated in about a year. That will really change the industry. Let's see what it does for that second screen engagement, everything the leagues and networks, the stakeholders are looking for. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business and Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. Another surprise. I don't know it. This is an easy one. Oh, I hate that. Zero. 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 The and number I'll give of you times you've won arguments in your you, home. Well, okay, that too. But, <laughs> I'll give you a hint. You mentioned this topic during our conversation with Jeff. I mentioned this topic. Or this zero. particular moment. Adina, a little help. Uh, all right, let's go spell. I don't remember. Zero. The Cleveland Browns oh. could win zero games this season. Now, up they have Cincinnati which Cincinnati beat the living daylights out of them the last time they played. Then you have the Chargers. Then you have Green Bay. You have Baltimore. Baltimore beat them the last time they met. Chicago and then Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh beat them the last time they met. The Browns, what would it mean for that organization if they go winless, like another organization that is near and dear to my heart many years ago? Well, let's let's look in our parlance, the things we do here. The money surrounding what are, what are the Browns worth? I haven't looked at the valuations lately, but you can bet that if a storied franchise like the Cleveland Browns were put on the market, you would have people on the runway with their paddles in the air, <laughs> waiting to bid billion five, billion six, billion seven, sold to the highest. That's the amazing part of the NFL. Even now. Numbers are coming down in terms of ratings. They're, they're not immune from the struggles. That's all well and good. There are new revenue streams coming, as we heard today, that will boost the value of these franchises. 32 teams, the only, worst team only, record. Only 32 of them. That's a good question. We might see a day when we're going to see an expansion one day. 
if people are willing to pay a billion dollars one day for an expansion team, remember, where does that go? It's not shared right into the owners' pockets. Players don't get that. That gets split among the owners right in their pocket. The New York Scotties. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak with Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.